This is a Crow's Nest podcast. And welcome back to Titanic Talkline. Uh, I'm going to try to keep this brief. I always say I will, and then I don't. So um, I'm just going to say remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the Talkline. And let's get on with today's interview. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining me. Um, I was wondering if you could just quickly introduce yourself and uh, tell me a bit about who you are before I pepper you with questions. Great. I'm I'm Lindsay Littleson. I, I live in Scotland and I have written a book set on Titanic called The Titanic Detective Agency. It was published in 2019 and it's become quite popular in schools in, in the UK and I, I'm really enjoying talking about it to people um, because when I started I didn't know very much about Titanic but I'm now a complete Titanic nerd. I just, I just, love, <laughs> I just love talking Titanic. That is, I think, the best way to come about it then. So you you didn't start out as a Titanic fan. So why don't you, it sounds like the journey to this book and your journey to Titanic are kind of intertwined. Could you tell me a bit about your, your journey through this book then? Yeah, like how well, it got started and where the idea came from? What happened was my, my publisher asked me if I could write a book set on Titanic, but if I, if I could give it a Scottish twist. And my first thought was, not really, because you know, Titanic was built in Belfast. It was traveling from Southampton to New York. It didn't have a Scottish connection. It wasn't a Clyde built ship. And um, maybe sure. it would have been better if it had been, who knows? Um, but the thing is, I thought, well, what if I just make up Scottish characters and like like we do in the movie with Jack and Rose? And I started to think about that. And then I did a little bit of research and I discovered, you know, that one of the most visited Titanic graves belongs to the, the, the Irish fireman, Joseph Dawson, um, who mm-hmm. who just happens to share an, an initial with Jack. And people visit his grave thinking he is, is Jack from the movie, a fictional character. And I thought, actually, I don't want the children yeah. who are reading my book to be confused about who's real and who's not so everybody I think they also had some trouble with that grave where people were accidentally desecrating it you know well-meaning mm. fans were just leaving tons of garbage there and writing things and leaving notes and you know it may be, whether it's well-intentioned or not that's not how you want anyone's you know, grave no. to be treated even if it's done with the best of intentions absolutely absolutely and I, I just thought you know, rather than getting children mixed up about, about fiction and non-fiction, sure. why don't I just make everybody in the book a, car- a a passenger or a member of crew on the ship? So I started looking at the passenger lists, and I looked at the first-class passenger list, first of all. And yes, there were children on Titanic and first-class, obviously, but they were mainly American children travelling home. Right. from holidays in Europe and I thought actually what I want is somebody who's doing something life-changing you know they're, they're leaving their home country they're moving across the sea to a, a brand new life the immigrant and, story so I looked at the second class passenger list instead and I found the only person on the ship who would do you know she, she was perfect she was from Aberdeen so she was 12 years old she gave me my Scottish twists with the Aberdeen connection Best of all, though, Bertha Watt was travelling with her mum. Her dad was an architect and he had moved six months earlier to America. So he was safely in America. You know, if he'd been on the ship with them, my story would have had a very sad ending for my main character. I was hoping to avoid that. So I was really lucky with Bertha. As I said, she was just perfect. And she was the only person in the ship who would have given me that Scottish connection, who was the right age for um, a children's book for nine to 12 year olds. So she was great. So she was my inspiration. And I was very lucky actually with Bertha because when she got to Oregon with her mum, um, she was a local celebrity, you know, people wanted to hear about her adventures on Titanic. And she wrote an account of her experience, um, a very long and detailed account. So I was able to use Bertha's own words in in my story, which was 
fantastic and also because she was a real person she had descendants so I was able to get in touch with her granddaughter Nancy who still lives in Oregon and and tell her about the book I was writing and she was able to tell me a few facts about her granny and about her great granny as well which was was fantastic that's awesome awesome. it's those little sparks of authenticity and the real stories of the people behind the faces that make these things come to life in my opinion because it's one thing to make up a fictional character as you've done to make up a fictional character, but even but you there's a spark of truth behind it, mm-hmm. and to be able to find that human connection really enables you to bring that personal touch to a story that makes you feel touched, that makes the reader feel included. Is that the word I want? I think so, and and also because because they were real, I think children feel kind of like more tense about what's going to happen to them as well because they know these are real people and this happened so it it does for the story I think it helps bring more drama more um (laughs) more more terror really because it's frightening isn't it it is and and my my first brush with Titanic I was I was eight when the movie came out and I got to see it in theaters and part of what really fascinated me was the story of Officer Murdoch, who was a real person. So when I got home, I could go take, you know, next library day, I could go find a big Titanic book and scan, scan, scan till I found the name and be like, oh, yes. there he is. Yes. That's him right there. And it, it bridges that gap between fiction and history. Absolutely. But he was actually a warning of what not to do because... Because you know James Cameron had to apologise to his family afterwards because of yeah. um, things he possibly invented in the movie about about the bribe taking and and the, the gun waving and the and bribe that, taking yeah. I think was the most egregious of the things yeah. because um as as adults I think maybe without the bribe we can understand why someone may choose that end in a very grand mm-hmm. traumatic mm-hmm. situation and there's. But once you include it with something like taking a bribe, that just kind of really adds a streak of, of dark yeah. to a character that's unnecessary, especially as you said, considering his history, by all accounts, he was an honorable career seaman who took his job very seriously. And it's like, oh, come on now. Do you have to do that? Yes. <laughs> and I was very conscious when I was writing the book that I didn't want that to happen. I didn't want any that's great. to come back and say, why have you written that book? That's character and so yeah that's reasonable I was so careful (laughs) but where did you come up with the idea for right not just writing a a titanic book but a titanic book for kids because again this is a very very grave situation Mm -hmm. you know I try to think I like to write as well but I haven't published anything like if I were to try to write a book for children about something like the seawall fairy disaster I don't know that I could bring that down I don't know that I could digest it down to a level where it's not traumatic for a mm-hmm. child. I was very conscious the whole time that I was writing for that age group yeah. from 9 to 12. And I, I I didn't want it to be too harrowing, obviously. I don't want to give children nightmares. And, and the best way for me to write the book was to just focus on what was happening to my characters and, and not to, you know, they, they don't have a huge overview of what's going on. It's just what's happening to them. But obviously... It's a huge tragedy, and there's no getting around that. It's a very popular topic uh, to be studied in in, in UK schools. So um, they do read books set on Titanic, and and uh, I think mine. Um, you know, I, I I hope that I've tackled it really sensitively, and um, that children will be uplifted because I've tried very hard to give it you couldn't give it a happy ending that would wouldn't have been realistic or or, or fair and um, sure. so I, I've given it a, a hopeful ending and an uplifting ending for for the people the children who who, who survived um, that's, that's, and and that is true to to you know as far as Bertha is concerned she she was an amazing person and her mother was an amazing person her mother was very courageous she she rowed, um, that's what Nancy had told me, that she was very good at rowing. So she had helped to row the lifeboat away from Titanic. This is her mother, Bessie. Wow. And then when Bertha and Bessie got to America, Bertha was quite traumatised. And, and her mum said, well, the first thing we're going to do, dear, is we're going to go on a boat ride. We're going to go on another boat. And that's what they did. And um, Bertha actually grew up to be a very keen 
yachtswomen. They owned a, a boat. They lived in British Columbia on an island that could only be reached by water. You know, she didn't just survive, she thrived. And I think that was very much thanks to her mum. So I think it's a kind of powerful message, isn't it? That, that trauma, if you've got support, um, you can you can get through just about anything. And you're absolutely right. And um, I talk a lot in other episodes about the fate of some of the officers who were very much plagued by what we now know as PTSD. Mm. And, you know, Officer Charles Lightoller, second officer, a high ranking, again, career seaman, couldn't take baths after the Titanic disaster. And it's just, um, you know, especially with men of the time, you didn't really offer them that kind of support. It was very much push it down, push it down, push it down until you explode. Um, but it's wonderful that she had the support of her family. And this just goes to show you that if you do have the support, you are able to to overcome things. And it's not to say that, you know, these these men and other women who didn't have that support were weak or anything. It just goes yeah. to show that you have to have that. You have to have at least someone who loves you enough to let you lean on them. Absolutely. And to talk. I mean, I, I think I, I compare to, to the uh, Ruth Baker, who... 12 year olds as well and she got off the Titanic and her mother said we'll not never talk of this again and I just thought yeah. you know that kind of approach and I think a lot of particularly the men um suffered from that this that kind of stiff upper lip let's just get on with life and and it it did haunt them um you know some talk about not being able to go to baseball games because in the crowd cars mm-hmm. screaming they could hear you know and, and that is awful that they they didn't they weren't didn't feel able and there were so many suicides afterwards as well yeah and it's so sad and I just love the fact that Bertha went on to have a a long happy life and and enjoyed boats and being on the water which is just incredible really it's almost a really contemporary story because um a lot of media now especially big big box media for children um with um Encanto and Turning Red and other um, TV series that are coming out are about dealing with generational trauma mm. and how that heals. And I think that that story is a really, really, really great example of how you can let it affect you. You know, don't talk about it. As soon as we step foot in New York, if you mention Titanic again, I will, I'll smack you. Yeah. You know, very much like don't don't bring it up. No one wants to talk mm-hmm. about it. And when you're not able to process it, it turns into this burden that your children and their children and their children will carry until someone finally decides to try to open the trunk. Yes, absolutely. And uh, and you could hear that when Frank Parentis, you know, when he was talking just when they listened to it just recently and talking about having nightmares still still all those years later and that was in nineteen seventy nine and so and and absolutely, you know, you needed you needed help. They all needed help at the time, but it just it wasn't available. The vast majority. Bertha was a lucky girl, really, and her mum. And I think that's a really unique story then to be able to base, especially something for children around where it's like, as we were just saying, it's a very heavy event, but you have this real life story and example to show of how overcomes the wrong word. You can move past the burden of your initial of the initial trauma and learn to live with it instead of being forever barred by it yes yes hopefully i mean obviously yeah i mean i don't know what it'd be like to live with something like that and um, but lots of children do live through really difficult situations Mm -hmm. and this idea of yes yes your parents uh, can help support teachers can help support you know there are people out there and and talk um, to to help you get through things so yeah that was an important part of 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 the book, uh, but as as I've said, it's very much a, a, a historical novel, and I've tried mm-hmm. to take two facts as much as I can, despite the fact I am obviously I'm writing historical fiction. Where did the where did the idea come to you? Like I I can't imagine just sitting in my backyard thinking I'm going to write a historical fiction about like I like Titanic, so I can't just imagine sitting up and going I'm going to write an historical fiction about. I'm so bad at history. The Hindenburg. I don't I don't know anything about it. And it's like, where do I even start? I know it was a balloon that went down. So as I mean, it's a it's a disaster I'm aware of. It's a it's a moment in time I'm aware of. But where'd that idea come from where you were just like, yeah, this is this is what I'm going to do tomorrow. I'm going to start doing this, this book. 
I, I, once I had started, once my publisher had said, why don't you think about writing Titanic? As I said, my initial reaction was, oh, I don't think so. But once I was, <laughs> once I'd started reading Bertha's words, started finding out about the people on Titanic, that, that I was so drawn in that you, it would have been really hard to stop me writing about Titanic. I, it's fascinating, isn't it? It's just so interesting discovering what happened to the people, or who they were, where they came from, their personalities. And we know so much about some of them, um, more than we know about a lot of people at that period. And it's just really fascinating to, to find out what happened to them next. How did they How did they cope? And uh, yeah, I just loved it. I was absolutely engrossed. You know, I, I, I started doing the research and I was doing all the research into the layout of the ship what the flooring was like in different areas, where what were the furniture bolted down, which rooms, and because you know you have to know all these things, even though you're writing fiction, yeah. it's supposed to be grounded in facts. You can't kind of make it all up. So, so yeah, I don't do what I do, which is fantasy fiction, where I literally <laughs> can make it all up and don't need to research. This is genuine. You have to sit down and really look at things. Yes, no, it's a lot. I did months and months of research and. And then I started the book and I started writing the first page and I was writing things like her gloves and I thought, oh, what kind of gloves? What, what would they be made of? Her umbrella? What? You know, and, and every, every tiny, tiny bit. And every, A spiral of questions. I had to, yeah, I had to check. I had to, it, the book she was reading, was that published before 1912? You know, the, 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 oh, yeah, all that, all that yeah. anachronistic style research. Oh, man. Exactly, yeah. Lots of work, but. I love that. I mean, history was, I, I studied medieval history, actually, at university. So I've always had an interest, so it wasn't like it was something brand new to me. Um, and yeah, it's it's so fascinating that I enjoyed every single minute of it. I think there has to be a Venn diagram for like medieval slash Arthurian legend and Titanic where there's an overlap because you're the second person I've spoke to who has an educational background in, well, hers is an Arthurian legend. So it's like, there has to be some correlation between the two and I wonder if some of it is just the opulence of both times mm, possibly yeah the, the costumes the drama the, the yeah the, the excitement uh, yeah. gold. <laughs> it's, it's all yeah yeah it's all there isn't it um, there's a lot of ceremony in both a lot of fancy dinners a lot of meals the, you know the upper class had nothing to do but travel and change clothes 13 times a day it was it was an era of of leisure for that very high elite group this is a complete tangent but it was just like wow i think there's a little something there yes it's my non-scholastic opinion it is lovely isn't it to read about their beautiful outfits and all the rest of it and, uh, and the yeah. gorgeousness of the person happy and, and yeah so it is exciting because you can just imagine when when the book starts and uh, my characters get on board and the second class passengers get a tour of the first class facilities and mm -hmm. that kind of gave me an opportunity just to talk about them and, and imagine what it felt to, to walk up that grand staircase for a little while knowing it wasn't your world but just having a look at it must have been just incredible um, and how they must have envied the first class passengers and thought, wow this is this is incredible because even the first class, I think, were were impressed and they were used to opulent surroundings. But funnily enough, Bertha's mother wasn't particularly. She felt the ship wasn't fast enough and it smelled <laughs> of, of paint, and she, she she couldn't wait to get to New York and get off. She, sounds like she would have preferred to go on a Cunard liner. Yeah. She was a practical woman. <laughs> she, no time for nonsense. Yeah, well, that's fair. I mean. Yeah. I think that's one thing that some people forget and I, is that, yes, for some people it was this beautiful, opulent party, but for other people it was, well, I got to get to New York and Titanic's leaving now, so all right, let's just, let's just go. Yeah. Come on. Oh, Come yeah. on. Yes, just a way to get somewhere else. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And um, for third class passengers, you know, the seasickness, the rolling of the ship it was maybe perhaps quite an uncomfortable trip that they just wished was over um maybe not the way it ended obviously but um certainly in a hurry to get to new york this was this was their new life starting you know, so 
They had one passenger on board who has that unfortunate negative manifestation. He was super seasick, leaning over the rail, going, man, I hope this would just voyage would be over. Never ask for things if you don't know how how they're going to get there, sir. (laughs) Bad mistake. Yeah, absolutely. The the other main character in my book is a third-class passenger um, called Johan, who Johan Serban Svensson, who was traveling on his own on board the ship. and, And it was quite interesting. Contrasting their experience mm-hmm. both during the voyage and obviously um, when the ship started sinking, because children in third class were at massive disadvantage, obviously, when, when yeah. the ship started to go down. So, um, Johan was a really interesting character, and I, I did try very hard to get hold of his descendants. Um, they have a, a website that's up with a page um, focused on Johan, and, and I got in touch with the website page and said look I'm writing this book do you want to read it but they haven't got back to me so I don't know whether it's maybe just not a manned page and nobody's read it yet but I, I'd love to have been in touch with somebody in this family to be able to, I've written this book but you'll want yeah. well maybe someday they'll they'll see that message and reach back out well let's hope so <laughs> so you said the book came out in 2019 when did you start actually writing it once your research was done when did you actually start your draft uh, I probably started in mid uh, beginning 2018 because it, it took probably about six months to do the first draft wow. and obviously I sent that's it, impressive <laughs> sent it to my and actually it was it was the book I've I've written that's needed least editing probably because it's got quite a kind of strict timeline and there's not much messing about. And, and there was so much research that I'd done, so obviously I had information that my publisher probably didn't. So um, there, other than line editing and sorting, there was um, not much editing happened, and then it came out in April 2019. It was actually meant to come out on the 10th of April. We were going to have our launch day then, um, and it ended up coming out on the 15th, so... So kind of this is sinking day, but never mind. Let's let's hope the book uh, comes out nicely. And and yeah, it was it was lovely. It's, as I say, it's going down really well in in schools mm-hmm. in the UK, and um, lots of children have said how much they're enjoying it. So yeah, it's mm-hmm. good. Have you been doing a lot of talks at school, or like virtually, or? Yeah, I I do talks uh, in person, um, and one of the tiny silver linings about the whole COVID horror was that I was kind of stuck at home and schools were, children were at home for quite a long time and, and teachers started getting in touch saying, could you do a Zoom um, talk? And it wasn't something I'd ever considered doing before. I, I had no right. experience of Zoom. I mean, probably lots of us didn't. We just didn't know what this was about. And it did enable me to visit schools and southern England that I wouldn't, you know, that it, the, the transport, the expense would have been just too much. So I, I, I'm still doing that. Um, it's something that's continued. And so I do quite regular Zoom visits to schools, which is lovely. I've started in person again as well, and that's that's nice too. There's nothing like being, being out. And I'm doing some festivals as well. I've done the Edinburgh Book Festival this year um, with my new book, The Rewilders. And I'm going up to the Hebrides to do another one, and to Aaron. So it's a great bond. I love being an author. It's just that's awesome. Yeah. What are what are some of the questions that you get most often from from kids? Like a handful of the ones that you find yourself answering a lot. There's always one child, always one who is a real a Titanic obsessive, and and they are desperate <laughs> to talk to me, not to ask questions. They're they're not interested in asking questions really, but to right. tell me facts, usually about conspiracy theories as well. And, and <laughs> so there's always one of you guys sitting at the back, like that, and I just know as soon as I say yes, what's your question? You'll say well, <laughs> and we'll be oh, into man. this chat immediately about whether it was actually <laughs> the oceanic or whatever. And and they, it's just so it's so funny. Uh, I love. I love these kids meeting them because you know they're, they, they, it's lovely that children are so enthusiastic about the subject. It's great, and uh, yeah, they could talk for hours about it, and so could I. So, my friend's daughter is ten, and she's into Titanic right now, and she you know read a couple of books, um, and uh, we ended up showing her the movie for the first time, which she really liked, and mm-hmm. I also gave her a copy of a. Um, 
Titanic Voyage, which is another Titanic fiction book for like young adults. And it's, mm-hmm. it's really interesting, you know, to see this younger generation of Titanic fans, you know, reading books that I've never heard of because they weren't around when I was a kid, because it's new. And I think that's really cool that there's still new media coming out and that there is not just room for it but a but a desire for it like people Mm -hmm. want more contemporary more new takes yes it's it's amazing isn't it 110 years later that we're still so keen on on titanic and long may it continue because it would be such a shame if people did lose interest i suppose the interest hasn't been there for that long though has it i mean when you think about it wasn't really of huge interest until Barlett found Titanic and then it all kind of started up and it, it went from there. So um, in the intervening years, it just seemed to have vanished. Really, and it's, uh, yeah, it's great that it's people are so keen and that yeah, there's still new things coming out, new books, new, new movies, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> we seem part. <laughs> oh, my I think the social media has a lot to do with it because you, you're you're just able to boost things now, whereas before, if you if you self published a book in Vermont, if there was no internet, it's like how are you going to tell somebody in Montana about it unless yeah. you somehow catch a break about it and it becomes picked up and X Y and Z. But now, if you're an independent writer, you can you can harness social media to get your story out. Absolutely, yes, yes, it's, and I think that's wonderful, isn't it? The internet has. There are downsides, obviously, but the connections are just fantastic. I, I, I just love that, about the fact that the world just has got so much smaller and we can talk to one another. Um, it's, it's fantastic. And, and share interests in common mm-hmm. in, across the world. That's true. <laughs> I've talked kind of broadly about Titanic at you, but I want to talk about your book itself. So what is it about? What is your book about? Well, it's it's a detective story. My my main character Bertha gets on board the ship and meets an, an eight year old girl called Madge, and they're bored basically. And they decide Madge sees a uh, Bertha sees a magnifying glass, picks it up, and decides that perhaps setting up a detective agency might be a good way to spend the time, because they've come suspicious of a, a gentleman in second class who's calling himself Louis Hoffman. And he's got two little boys with them. Um, And so they start kind of following him about and trying to find out what's going on because his story doesn't quite ring true about why he's travelling on his own with these two little lads. And also there's a a boy uh, in third class who they come across, both girls come across, who has a what he thinks, hopes, is a treasure map. And Mm -hmm. the... and Bertha and Johan try to find this treasure that's hidden in the hold of the ship. So as the ship, as the story moves on, they're not aware, obviously, of what's going to happen. So the adventure is sure. really very much focused on this treasure map and the detective um, adventure. And I did that very much because the ship doesn't sink until the 15th of April and it starts going down mm-hmm. to the 14th. So you can't have all that time, you know, that's about 60, 70% through your book where nothing very much is happening. And I don't want it to have that kind of issue. Um, so it had to have plot, it had to have excitement and drama before disaster strikes. And the plot does, the mystery does get solved um, along with all the drama of the uh, sinking. So... And it does have quite a hopeful, hopefully uplifting ending. Um, and the children survive, thank goodness. So, yes, that's, that's the story. Are the boys that they're looking at, the two French boys? Yes. Yeah. Ah, yeah. I was going to say, I, that story sounds somewhat familiar. To be perfectly fair, I think I'd also be suspicious of someone with a very weird story and two children that did not speak English so you yeah. couldn't verify it. Be like, you're off. Yes. And Bertha said in her account, you know, in 1912 in her class newsletter that she had mm-hmm. met the little boy, she'd played with them. So this, you know, it was fact and that she was suspicious. So I just took it that little bit further with having the detective agency um, and having this kind of game that they're playing. Um, that, you know, suddenly the game's all stop and everything 
gets serious when the ship starts sinking. So there is, mm-hmm. a, yeah, it's it's quite it's quite a moment uh, when yeah. when all the fun stops. Um, yeah, it's it's it was a really good book to write. It was so fun. I mean, it sounds strange, but you know when you get so involved in Titanic and just absolutely mm-hmm. loving telling telling the story of everybody on board. And I could have put so many more people in. You know, you, you get carried away and say, "Well, I need to have uh, the Astors. I need to have the Ben Guggen thing." And they do get mentions, but I thought I don't want to overload it with characters, no matter how tempting sure. it is. <laughs> the entire cast. <laughs> Um, then it's going to turn into basically a biblical retelling where it's like and so and so was here and so and so was there and they knew so and so from that and that and this place and that and place and they had a child named that yes and it that's a problem that i encountered with trying to watch the movie sos titanic the 70s film in that they they wanted to introduce so many characters that you can't build a story when you're trying to introduce me to 13 people you're just bebopping around from this person to that person by the time you come back to one character it's been 45 minutes since i've seen them i was like oh shoot i forgot they were there yes exactly and and when you're writing a children's story in particular you've got to keep kind of keep it quite focused and you've got to make your characters relatable so that the child readers are going to care what happens to them so I made like bertha she's quite bossy and um, she's she was great fun to write she was quite a character you know i i, I took things I knew about her like her favorite subjects at school was gymnastics so I knew she was quite physically confident I could Ooh. tell by her writing that she was quite an enthusiastic um, dramatic person and and so that I hope comes across in this in the story and, and she was a fun character to write Johan I didn't know nearly so much about um so mm-hmm. I had to kind of make him up and, and just do that thing that fiction writers get quite good at and just putting yourself in other people's shoes and thinking well how would I feel if I was 14 and I'd got a letter from my father saying I was to come across to America and work on the farm and leave my four little brothers my mom behind not knowing if I'd ever see them again and go in this big ship across the sea not able to speak a word of English and Mm -hmm. it must have been scary yeah it sounds awful, actually. Mm, mm, really nerve-wracking. Mm-hmm. He did, um, Johan, he, d- he did get to America. He's, he met up with his dad and his big sister and the rest of his family made it over to America, apart from his mum, um, who died in 1914. So he never, he did never see his mum again. So mm-hmm. you just think, oh, it was, it was really tough for these people, wasn't it? It wasn't a matter of just flying over and then coming back when you needed sure. clothes. It was, it was a big deal. Yeah, huge big deal. And it was expensive. It wasn't like you could save up a little while and get some spare cash mm. to go on a, on a flight. For many people, these tickets were life-saving style yeah, money. Absolutely. And actually, they did incredibly well managing to get four little brothers over and the big other sister. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. that's an incredible investment of funds yeah. for, for anyone during yeah. that time. Yeah, it was it was huge. So... Yes, I'm. I'm glad they all got reunited. I'd have liked to know more about what happened to them, but I'll need to. I'll need yeah. to wait and see if they, they get in touch with me. Let me know. You should. I found that a lot of people are are interested in telling their mm-hmm. stories. Not everyone. I'm not going to speak for everyone, but many people are interested in telling the story of their family. Yes, absolutely. Yes, especially when it's somebody who's you know he was really brave. He was really brave. He was. He was. As I said, mm-hmm. he was 14. He was on his own, and he had to use his initiative to get off the ship basically because mm-hmm. he wasn't getting any help you know as I say, he couldn't speak english all the instructions were in english he, he, so many people were going the wrong long way wrong way along scotland road so what he did was he climbed up ladders until he got up to the boat deck and then he tried to get onto a, a lifeboat and of course he was pushed off by officers he would have been too old to qualify as a child yeah yeah, yeah. and he I mean, even absurd now when you think about it 14 year olds are most definitively children yes it's just a little boy and when you look at photos of him you think oh come on you know he was not yeah. like a grown man but yeah he was he was shoved off a couple of lifeboats before he managed to get on one and, and be safe and yeah thank goodness yeah very incredible yeah. stories yeah there's so many incredible stories that's what i loved about it so much so many stories 
and such colors. Are you gonna write another Titanic book or a follow up to this? Kids, uh, when I go to schools, quite often ask me that. Will I write a follow up? And I can't really because mm-hmm. the three children never met again in real life. Um, nah. You know, it wouldn't work. I'd have to make it all up, and I feel like I use so yeah. much act in this one that any follow up would just be a kind of pure, pure copy. But that's I, fair. I, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes things are meant to stand alone. I think it should stand alone. I think so. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Well, what about, you have another book, right? I've got another, yeah, six books published, yes. What yeah. was your most recent one? I, I have no memory. My most recent one's called The Rewilders, and it's about uh, rewilding large predators in Scotland, so... Um, yeah, that's that's what. Yeah, well, you know how the wolves in Yellowstone Park is is a similar kind of idea, like bringing back wolves to Scotland because there were wolves in Scotland till up till the 18th century, or um, lynx because we used to have northern Eurasian lynx in Scotland and we don't have them anymore. And there's a kind of opinion that perhaps it might be a group good idea to. To release some links uh, up in the highlands of Scotland and see how they'd, they'd get on. But obviously, hmm. it won't work until there's consensus and agreement. So, um, right. everybody has to get together and talk about it before it'll ever happen. It's like they started reintroducing wolves a few years ago to um, Yellowstone Park mm-hmm. to replenish the wild population. They're doing well every every year. Yes, absolutely. Better and better. Yes. It's made an incredible difference to the ecosystem there. So, you know, mm-hmm. it can be really successful. And the yes. reason for doing it in Scotland would be that they're trying to replant native trees. And mm-hmm. uh, we've got a real problem with an explosion of deer numbers and the deer are eating yeah. the trees. So, so having a predator would be a kind of natural way to, to um, keep that problem in check. So, yeah, it's, it was a really interesting reason. story to write. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I just looked it up. That is interesting. And I think that also touches on another really important thing, which, as you mentioned, is the preservation of the natural ecosystems and Mm -hmm. the natural landscapes. And that's part of why they reintroduced the wolves to areas where it was to keep, you know, these animals that had had no predators for a very long time, the population in check. Like I live um, close to the D.C. area and I live in a suburb. Mm-hmm. So there are not really a lot of natural predators here, and there are so many deer and so many rabbits, which is not to say they need to be eradicated, but I think their populations need to be managed a little bit more to where they would be naturally, just because yeah. there are it's it, it's an abundance and it, it throws everything out of whack, and then you get rid of the plants because they get eaten and all this stuff. Yeah, absolutely, and and. For Scotland in particular, it's no longer really about protecting. It's It's got to be more about restoring because so yeah. many of our trees have been lost, you know, like for firewood and building houses and all the rest of it over, over hundreds of years. And, and, and these forests have to be restored. You know, we've got temperate rainforests in Scotland and it's mm-hmm. internationally important, but there's just tiny fragments left. So if we want wildlife, we need to have wildlife corridors and, and, and habitat forms. Yeah, that was another really interesting book to research. You know, lots of work again, but a great bond. Have you heard of this documentary called The Biggest Little Farm? No, no. My my mom had me watch it a few years ago, so I'm I'm a little fuzzy on the specific details, but it was really good. It was about a couple who decided that they, well, they just bought a farm Mm -hmm. knowing nothing about it, but they decided they didn't want to have a traditionally commercial farm. They wanted to do natural farming where they worked with the landscape and restored the balance of the ecosystem. And it's about their journey to bringing in the specific predators that used to live in the area and encouraging like these things which are necessary and finding out what's a pest and what's not, how to manage this, adding ground cover to preserve everything. It was a really, really interesting look at returning land to its natural state and then learning to work with it to produce what you want it to. So it's, it's a really good documentary, maybe yeah, a little boring for kids, but really good. Yeah, I'm going to the rewilding conference in Perth. Uh, in September so 
I'm hoping to learn more about um, all aspects of rewilding, not just the reintroduction of predators, but the people right. and the lichen and all the, the, the other bits that, that are important too, so that I can talk knowledgeably when I go to schools. You know, I don't, I don't want mm-hmm. to be doing it from a position of ignorance. I've got to know what I'm talking about. So. <laughs> that's good because it is there is one thing into writing a fiction book and there's and then that opens you up to a world of questions mm-hmm. like you know you wrote a book on titanic and you encounter one of those children who has read 78 books on titanic and they want to have a conversation you better know something about smokestacks you're absolutely right you've got to know one of the funnels wasn't real you've got to know how many rivets there were you've got to know these things yeah and and <laughs> They, they they weren't the things that fascinated me as I say I was, sure. I was most interested in the people but I, I had to know all Same. the other stuff so yeah that's what I've learned it yeah I'm not a, a rivet head that's not my uh <laughs> it's not my level of interest I mean again nothing against the people who are because mm-hmm. you find your interest wherever you do but like you my interest is in the people I love these stories about like how Bertha went on to become like a yachtswoman that's I love that. I liked the story that I learned from Angelica Harris about the Parachio brothers and one of the pictures taken of them, they were wearing a tie and a silk orchid made by their mother. Like little, little stories like that, that you can weave something through um, or that I don't think the dog was on board, but that Murdoch and, and Smith both had dogs that they were really, really loyal to and that they loved. There are these little human things that you start pulling out of the tapestry that to me make it as rich as it is and i don't know where i was trying to end that sentence so i'm just gonna stop <laughs> no it's, it's, it is it, it makes them human as well doesn't it i mean it's rather exactly talking about people that died long ago and that children won't be able to relate if, if i bring in something that old billy carter had a dog he was really fond of and leaving it behind you know haunted him for the rest of his life these kids can relate to that because they've got dogs who love that that kind of imagining having to leave it in a sinking ship so you've you've got them you know if you've got those kind of details you've got their interest and you've you've got them thinking empathizing with the characters so caring which is is really important isn't it they care um and yeah they can relate it to to their own their own experiences which is difficult when you're talking about yeah, yeah. people living all that time ago and it, it seems so different but if you can make mm-hmm. them like these are these are kids with feelings like they did and it, it's very yeah. different i remember in middle school i i looked it up because i couldn't remember what it was called i read a book that i now remember is called titanic crossing um and it's by barbara williams <clears throat> and it follows a a boy in second class um who's traveling with like his uncle, his mom, and his sister um, uh, to rejoin their family in New York. And I don't remember most, a lot of the plot points, but to this day, I still remember a couple of little things that were very human moments. One was this, you know, 13-year-old boy getting absolutely frustrated with his younger sister. I'm the older sibling in my family. And he just did that thing that I used to do, which is get super pretentious and bust out a word that no one else knows. And he just yells at her and tells her that she's obstreperous. <laughs> and I have remembered that that word ever since then. Yes. Because I was just like, that sounds like something I would do. And later on after the sinking when he's reunited with his sister you know he spent the entire voyage being like my sister's annoying oh my gosh my sister won't stop talking my sister my sister but afterwards someone is trying to take his sister's doll from her because it's it's been in the water and they're like it's been damaged and it's might be contaminated and he goes over and rescues the doll and is like we'll sanitize it we'll take care of it and these little tiny moments Mm. of I don't remember much about his story on the ship or his interactions. That wasn't what stuck out to me. It was the moments that were like, oh, I could see myself doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, as I say, I tried to make them relatable. I tried to have fun in it as well because I thought, well, these are children who are on this exciting voyage. You know, they, they would be thrilled to bits with themselves and having trying to make a good time of it because it could have been quite dull, yeah. couldn't it? But they had other children to play with. And and uh, so, uh, yeah, it was, it, for the first for the first parts of the book, it's, it's, it's mainly about just having fun and excitement and the drama of, of the treasure and 
though it doesn't turn out to be quite what they expected at all. But um, yeah, <laughs> it, really, it leads on. It's a very young experience. I remember being on long haul flights when I was younger, finding another kid who was around my age and just doing something together to pass the time oh, because absolutely. it was boring. Yes, yes. So, yeah, that that's very much it. I always felt sorry for Lucille Carter, um, who's Billy Carter's sister. So they were the kind of richest children in the ship. And she was about 14, mm-hmm. and I thought she, her life must have been really dull because she would have been too old to play with them. Mm-hmm. And she'd have been sitting, you know, sipping tea all afternoon with the ladies. Gosh, <laughs> how boring. Absolutely tedious for a poor girl. Um, yeah, so she, she probably I think about that sometimes mm. when you're like, well, you pass, you know, I think it was like 12 or 13. Once you turned 12 or 13, you were no longer a boy or a girl, you were a young man or a young woman, and you were expected to 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 even to be with the adults, not mm. just you know, in a little way, but you were an adult now, you do adult things, you don't fidget, you wear these clothes now you wear the long skirts you wear the trousers you you don't go play you don't get on your hands and knees and run around you sit yeah absolutely and if you're in a hole, you smoke you probably a, you don't get in a life pool. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah i uh, i don't remember who was whose story i was listening to because i my brain doesn't process things very well but i was listening to a, um, a woman speaking about a family some of whom survived the sinking and some, some did not. Mm-hmm. And um, I think one of the young men traveling with them had turned 13 that day. Oh. And he was wearing like his first pair of trousers and they were trying to convince him to go with the children because they were like, I think they were going to let him. Like even the mm-hmm. crew was going to be, was like, come on. But he refused. He was like, I'm a man now. I will stay with the men. And it's just, I'm thinking about that. I'm like, you are an eighth grader and you need to sit down and do what you were told. But that was kind of what was expected of him at the time. They were going to bend the rule, but it was a bending of the rule. It would have been an exception. Yeah. Yeah. And even the ones that got on board, like like Billy, um, you know, the, the story of him his mother putting on her his her hat on his head to try and mm-hmm. save his life and these things followed them afterwards you know as, as kind of like that horribly time, isn't it i'm absolutely shocking you just think oh my goodness these were children <laughs> um and even for that adult men you know the the judgment Mm-hmm. it's so harsh um, I find it shameful not for them but for the people that yeah. judged them for how dare you yeah absolutely I mean you haven't been in that situation haven't you I mean I know I would be fighting for the nearest life <laughs> I have seen how people drive during rush hour I have zero doubt in my mind that all of those people would be rushing the lifeboats mm-hmm. be trampling children out of your way <laughs> And that's not meant to, you know, again, denigrate any one particular person. It's just when your life is on the line, you become very, very tunnel visioned. Yes, and and so, such a scary way to go. I mean, it must have been. Mm-hmm. You can't imagine how frightened they must have been. And mm-hmm. yeah, I, and I think people call it. It's not surprising that I think there was something like eighty odd men said that they'd they'd. Um, climbed over the railings, jumped into the sea and swam out to a lifeboat and actually there was mm-hmm. only five or six pulled alive from from the sea and you just think, well, yeah I don't blame them for telling that fib because I didn't mm-hmm. tell that fib too because otherwise you were going to get name called and Yeah, and... if you were going to be castigated for the rest of your life for telling the truth and saying because on Murdoch's side of the boat he was doing women and children first yeah. so if there was no one else around yeah. Men could just guilt-free step in, but if I knew for the rest of my life that just because I did, there was no one else around and I got a seat that someone was going to just, around every corner, there was going to be someone, as soon as I turned going, <laughs> I would tell that lie too. Not just, to, not, not just to save my reputation, but just to save the trauma of having to hear that follow you around or having to constantly explain yourself like you go to the drugstore be like by the way i've already explained myself like 13 times today but like there was nobody else around so i was able to get on the boat it was totally fine just you shouldn't stop saying that how exhausting would that be yeah exhausting absolutely exhausting 
Um, I, I, I don't know how they bore it, and then some of them mm -hmm. can't bore it very well. But, um, it must have been very, very hard. And yeah, it's just, I suppose, I was going to say more judgmental times, but goodness knows what it'd be like nowadays. I don't know whether it'd be any better. Cause... I think we're the same level of judgmental. Yeah, I just think that we've learned not to say certain things out loud. <laughs> Like we, we there it's i don't know it's it's one of those things where we both have and haven't changed a lot as a society yeah absolutely yes you can go on and on about oh yes it was very different times but yeah was it really i mean yeah so like, yeah. yes and no yes and no yeah it's it's, it's, like, it's just so interesting though isn't it it's just yeah. so interesting to, to to just discover and research i've just had a, an absolute ball learning about titanic that's amazing. And I want to thank you so much for your time because I know you're super busy and your time is very much in demand, but I, I really wanted to talk to, again, as many people as I could, especially people who are really trying to pull in that next generation, mm -hmm. which I think is incredible and necessary. Yes. Well, I hope so. I hope so. And I hope the children who do read the book enjoy it and get something out of it and, and, and learn something, obviously, about Titanic as well. I'm sure they do and they will. But again, thank you so much for your time and for, for the book. It's, it looks very fun. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Alexia. I want to thank Lindsay so much for coming on. Her book was, was, was so fun. It's, it's so cute. You should read it. It's called The Titanic Detective Agency. You can get it on Amazon. I'll definitely be sure to link that in the description box below. Um, I will be linking to the Amazon US page because I and the vast majority of my listeners are in the US. Um, Lindsay is in the UK and you can search for her book on the Amazon UK as well. You can also find her on Twitter. Her username is LJ Littleson. That is L J L. I-T-T-L-E-S-O-N. And that's her Twitter username. And her Instagram, if you want to get in touch with her, there is Lindsay Littleson. That's her full name, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y-L-I-T-T-L-E-S-O-N. Um, and Instagram, so it's Instagram.com slash Lindsay Littleson. And you can find her on her website, which is lindsaylittleson.co.uk. Thank you guys again so much for listening. Be sure to leave me a review, subscribe, uh, even though I'm pretty sure that most of you who are listening are obviously already subscribed. Otherwise, you'd be really, 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 really sad Titanic Talkline listeners. Well, you make me a sad Titanic Talkline host if you're listening and not subscribing. That's a lie. I actually dislike that you're still listening. And I will see you in the next one. Bye! Titanic Talkline was created and produced by me, Alexia. Be sure to keep up with the show on all the social medias at Titanic Talkline on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That is all one word, Titanic Talkline, T-I-T-A-N-I-C-T-A-L-K-L-I-N-E. If you want to get in touch, be on the show, sponsor the show, or have a question or anything you want to tell me, send me an email at Titanic Talkline, again, all one word, at gmail.com. That's Titanic Talkline at gmail.com. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. Bye!